Hello, everyone, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Moderate Podcast for Saturday, April 10th, 2021. Yes, uh, we are going to go ahead and switch days. I think we're going to stick with it, too. I think we're going to stay on Saturdays. Uh, just, you know, I've been telling you that I've been recording the show early. And so I might as well move up the, the release date, too. So we're going to see how well that works out. Um, in terms of our listenership and, and making sure people that still get the show that want the show, um, if it's too outdated for people once they listen to it, maybe that doesn't, maybe that changes their mind. But I think they also want the, my feedback on different things. So, I mean, that's obviously why you're listening. You want to know my take on whatever the, the issue du jour that I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm assuming that people want to hear uh, what I have to say. Um, but anyway, I digress. We got a lot. We have a lot to get to today. There's a couple of uh, small subjects, but our main subject today I want to talk about is Matt Getz. Uh, first, before we actually talk about the mess that he is in, we're just going to talk about some of his background. We're going to talk about who he is, and I think that really helps understand and puts things into context as far as the accusations that are being made against them. Again, I'm not saying the guy is guilty of anything at this point. But um, the fact that he is involved in some kind of crazy um, story with wild accusations um, shouldn't be that surprising given his colorful past. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, but I do want to do a couple of show notes before we get started. Uh, we are encouraging our listeners to leave a uh, review on Podchaser. You've heard me talk about this over and over and over again. Um, but now it's for a good cause. So even if you haven't really wanted to do it because you just you know it takes too much time, they don't really you don't really care about it that much. Now you have a good reason to leave a review for us on Podchaser, even if it's just to say we're doing a great job or that we suck, you know that I suck, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, whatever. However you want to, whatever you want to say, uh, if you leave a review for our show, Podchaser will donate twenty five cents. Two meals on wheels. So for every review that you leave on Podchaser, regardless of the show, it could be our show, it can be other shows as well. Uh, but if obviously if you're listening to our show, I encourage you to do it on our show. Um, just uh, they will donate 25 cents to meals on wheels. And if I respond, which I plan on doing to the comments, they will double that uh, donation to 50 cents. So now you're going to leave us valuable feedback that'll help us make the show better. But also, you'll be able to uh, help us a good cause at the same time. So I hope you will check that out. So to do so, please visit our website at themoderatepodcast.com. On the right side of the page, if you're on a PC, you'll see the Podchaser link on the right side. If not, if you're on, a, uh, on your mobile device, um, just visit the website and scroll down until you see the Podchaser um, banner. Just click on it, and that'll take you to our Podchaser page, and then you can leave your... Uh, your review there. And again, we will respond to them. And um, please do it not for myself. Do it for Meals on Wheels. Do it for a good cause. So I encourage you to do that. Um, the other thing is, is that as you know, as you well know by now, we are on Podbean. And I want to encourage you to download the Podbean app to listen to podcasts, not just ours, but any podcast. Um, one thing that I will say that uh, that they do a better job than Anchor did was with their app. With Anchor, you could only listen to sh uh, shows that were hosted by Anchor, whereas Podbean is a universal um, podcast uh, podcast uh, catcher. So you can actually um, get all of your favorite podcasts on there, regardless of whether Podbean Podbean um, hosts it or not. So I, I encourage you to do that. And I do want to point out that we were listed as a popular podcast in the government section of Podbean, so that was pretty cool. So it looks like uh, you know our moved Podbean is paying off so far. So we're excited about that. And again, um, please uh, check out the Podbean app if you're still looking. If you want to just try it out, see how you like it, and um, and and for all not just for our show, but any of the podcast podcasts that you listen to, uh, you should be able to find them there. Now, on a personal note, um, I finally have some good news on our pool. Um, our excavator will be out on Wednesday to uh, do the layout. So hopefully that means that the digging will start soon. So I will start posting pictures 
on um, Instagram and probably Twitter as well, um, just so that we can get all of our followers. Um, and I want to just use this as kind of a personal way to, you know, follow the progress of our of our new background oasis. But please forgive me for the first picture and the mess that our backyard is in. We bought it pretty much the way you're going to see it. And we knew we were going to do the pool right away. So that's why we really haven't done anything to the backyard, backyard at all. We haven't touched it. So, you know, please uh, give us a little bit of a break for how bad it looks because it's not pretty right now for, for all. There's weeds everywhere. It's, it's pretty nasty, actually. But uh, that will start going away soon. And hopefully we're going to transform it into a paradise that we've been hoping for for months now. Okay, now let's get into actual substance, things that you care about. I, I, I appreciate you allowing me to digress a little bit. Um, one thing that I've seen pointed out in the whole COVID debate lately is the amount of cases, the, the caseload um, per 100,000 um, in the Northeast and versus, you know, and, and generally in states that have mask mandates versus what they look like in Texas and Florida, who have been very loose with those standards, actually have eliminated them altogether. So that is something to behold, but it's really not that um, out of the realm of possibility. And the reason being is, is that you know, they talked about all the people that were there for spring break and without masks, and they thought they'd see a spike in Florida. My question is, why would you expect that? Because most of the people that are in Florida for spring break do not live in Florida. So if they caught uh, COVID there, along with any other variable, you know, very, very diseases that you probably pick up during spring break, you know, STDs, whatever, um, you take that home with you. You know, you remember the line in uh, in in um, Hangover, the original Hangover one, where he talks about I can't believe it's like I think it's like syphilis or some some STD. It's like, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but you know whatever STD he mentioned that that comes back with you. Well, COVID comes back with you. So if if a bunch of people caught COVID, and they primarily live in the Northeast, guess where they took it home to them with. You know what I'm saying? And they're saying, oh, it's in younger people. So it makes perfect sense that that would happen. So I don't know why people are, are, are confused by this or why people are claiming, oh, look at, you know, Florida has everything open and they're fine. And well, yeah, it's because the people that would have caught it in Florida probably took it home. You know what I mean? Now, that doesn't explain all of it. I also do believe that some of the mask mandates are ridiculous. And so that that is part of the problem. But, you know, the other thing that they're saying, that they're claiming, the experts are claiming, because they are so confused by this, is that, well, they're testing less in those states that have mask mandates versus the ones that don't. So I, I don't know exactly uh, what is... Um, what is happening, I think the, but I, I think part of it is the spring break bump. Um, I wouldn't be surprised by that. But even if the cases are up, if the, if the hospitalizations aren't up, if the deaths aren't up, then what's the problem? I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like this disease affects people, you know, disproportionately affects older people or people that have pre-existing conditions. If you have those conditions that you know that we are very well aware of by now, you should be taking precautions to protect yourself. So, this whole thing about you know the the, the states that have the mask mandates or that have the, the spikes, it's be, it, you know people are claiming, oh well, that's because the masks don't work. And as a matter of fact, they make things worse. It's like no, they don't. Um, that's definitely not what it is. But also the masks don't do as much as people want to believe they do, I don't think. And that's why, you know, the numbers, you know, in Florida versus California versus Texas really haven't been that much different in terms of caseload. So it's, it, it, it's you know, I, I think this, this COVID thing it was going to probably do what it's doing no matter what we did. And the more and more I see evidence of that, 
the more I believe that, yeah, there might have been a few more deaths had we not done anything and just kind of lived life like normal the last year, but it wouldn't have made that much of a difference and would have been offset by all of the collateral damage that was done with all the shutdowns. There was an article that I saw come out that said that COVID patients are, you know, the one of the long-term effects of having COVID is mental health issues, which I call complete BS on. It's like you're reporting people that have had COVID and they, you know, one in three are suffering from some kind of um, psychological damage. Well, what about the people that haven't had COVID that have been locked up? What do those numbers look like? There's no context. They don't even mention that at all. And so it's as if you had COVID, therefore it affects your mental health. Maybe it's the lockdowns that have affected your mental health. Just a, just a guess. Just, just, a, just a guess here. So I, I don't like this whole, you know, the, 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 the continuing doubling and tripling down on the narratives in the media is ridiculous. And that's why people are just getting tired of it. And I think that number is continuing to grow. And the number of people that are adamant about things are continuing to shrink. And um, we're going to continue to see that, I think. So we'll see what happens. Um, okay, so earlier this week, there was an article um, in The Hill that talked about the White House. So this is, this is uh, says, White House, here's the headline. The White House says bills are bipartisan, even if GOP doesn't vote for them. So remember, Joe Biden ran on this, uh, this campaign of unity, right? And we'll talk about that in the article in a second. I'm just going to read you the first few paragraphs. It'll give you an idea of what things are happening. The White House wants to change how people per perceive bipartisanship, arguing that if they put forward proposals that are backed by Republicans and independents, they should see they should be seen as bipartisan, even if GOP lawmakers in Washington vote, don't vote for them. The effort took shape as Democrats approved a massive and broadly popular $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief measure with zero GOP support and continues as the party increasingly looks poised to move another $2.25 trillion, uh, infrastructure, uh, trillion dollar infrastructure measure through Congress just with Democratic votes. President Biden campaigned as a unity candidate who would work with Republicans, and the GOP increasingly has criticized him for turning his back on that vow with a big Democratic-only measures. But the White House has shrugged off the criticism, vowing to take big actions at a critical moment to help the economy address inequality and other needs it says have been ignored for too long. So he was going to come in and be bipartisan, and of course that was a very cute notion but knowing how bitter politics are these days and knowing the GOP, knowing how much, the, how bitter their base is that they don't really have to follow. You know, even if these do have big bipartisan support in terms of polling data, that doesn't mean that Republicans are going to stop voting for Republicans and all of a sudden start voting for Democrats because of these programs. They're not going to get a lot of there's not going to be a lot of change in terms of votes in this situation. Yeah, they may like different singular proposals. As a matter of fact, I've seen polling data on the infrastructure plan. They ask about specific parts of it that has broad support, but they don't mention other parts that probably don't. So yeah, you know, you might have support for, you know, 10, 20% of that spending of that $2 trillion bill. But the other 80% of it, they don't care for. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll pull low. But then if you want to use this argument, Donald Trump could have used the same argument because it's not like he had zero support from, from Democrats and independents for most of his stuff. And, and that's the case throughout time. So I guess if you, as long as you show some support from each party for a certain um, initiative, therefore it's bipartisan. That's what we're made. This is what the standard we're setting, which means that every single bill that has ever passed probably is could be considered bipartisan by this standard. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And, you know, now they're trying to change the narrative. I mean, man, you know, Jen Psaki, she she gets up there and is condescending and lying. And, you know, for, for all the criticism they gave Kaylee McEnany, and the, the Trump administration, 
man, they are they are doing the same thing. And, and the press, even the liberal press, has started to somewhat push back on the Biden administration. And so it's it's kind of cool to see that and maybe getting some semblance, but does that also just show just how blatantly hypocritical the Biden administration is being? And how much of this is Joe Biden versus the people that are working for him? You know, and that's where the mental capacity questions come into play. I'm not suggesting that he's not mentally fit to do the job, but what I'm saying is, is that are his advisors getting too much of a big role in his White House? Is he not is he not being forceful enough in his say, or are they trying to keep him on the sidelines? And that's where where the wonderment is, and you know because he's not. You you wouldn't expect somebody that's been in politics for that for this long to all of a sudden change the way he is, you know what I'm saying? And I think that he he hasn't, and I don't think that what they're doing is like really really too liberal because like for example, AOC wants us to spend ten trillion dollars on on quote unquote infrastructure, and you know people are criticizing this two trillion dollar infrastructure package as being the the uh, uh, the Green New Deal. No, like it doesn't go even close to that. The Green New Deal is closer to what AOC is proposing, which is ten trillion. This doesn't even start to scratch the surface of it. Yes, it has elements of that, but it doesn't have enough to really make that big of a difference. The Green New Deal is a very, very aggressive, almost like you have to just pretend monetary policy doesn't exist. And that is actually something that AOC has said in the past, is that there, you could just print as much money as you want, and it really has no meaning. Not understanding that inflation's an actual thing, but, you know, who knows? Anyway, I just thought that was uh, kind of hilarious. Here's a, a, a sound clip I want to play for you. Um, the, the headline from Jessica O'Donnell, she posted this video. She says, carbs are racist is a new one. And this is where I get really irritated with some conservative commentators. Because this is the, the quote, they quote, quote, carbs are racist, end of quote, is a new one. Okay, listen to this 30 second clip and you tell me if that's what she's actually saying. You can't get access to good health care, good insurance. The research says that black women, when we do the same diets as white women, we lose less weight and we lose it slower, even when we're following the diet than our white women counterparts. And what and what public health practitioners think is that our stress responses in the body change our metabolism. It's literally that the racism that you're experiencing and the struggle to make ends meet actually means the diet don't work for you the same. Now, that's not... Okay, so first of all, I don't agree with everything that she is saying here. I don't know the woman's name that is making the comment, but it is at a, at a black women conversation type of thing. The, the entire audience is black. The panelists are black, so it's all African-American women, women 100%. In this audience, I don't know where this was this was shown or whatever, but I don't necessarily agree with. I do agree with stress; that is definitely a factor. Um, could it be because of of dealing with racism? Could be. Um, I don't think it's necessarily talking about intergenerational um, race and, and the effect that ha that has on you know we've we've heard about that theory, um, which my wife has actually studied a little bit. Um, but where in there did she say carbs are racist? That's not was that was not the point of this at all. Her point is is that she's saying that diets are that are uh, that they don't they don't lose weight the same way that white women do because of additional stresses in their life, being more you know being on on average being poorer than their white counterparts, which will lead to stress certainly will lead to stress. Now, is that in here, is that, is that rooted in racism? That's where that could be argued, I guess. We've talked about the, 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 the both sides of that issue on this program before, but people then commented on this post and they didn't even listen 
And they're saying, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe they're even saying carbs are racist now. They didn't listen to the clip. She didn't even say that at all. So when people post crap like this, you're telling me that is racist because she's completely misleading her audience there. It's ridiculous. And it's offensive to me that she would do that, regardless of whether I agree with the person's stance that's saying this. But let's actually be accurate about what she's saying. Not that carbs are racist. And I don't know if she's just saying that tongue-in-cheek, she's being sarcastic, but the problem is, again, people don't even watch the video because they're like, I don't even watch this because I think it's ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if I can find any comments on here that would, uh, I, don't have, I, I, don't, I don't have time for that to do that, but bottom line is it seems just ridiculous. Um, and, and that's where, in, in that kind of thing, just kind of just really irritates the hell out of me, but... Um, so you may have heard about this. This is a, vi a video posted that went viral, um, this past week, um, has to do with Spirit Airlines, which by the way is, I hope they never sponsor our show because they are the worst airline ever. I mean, they are just God awful. They're terrible. I've had friends that I've, I've flown them before. I've had friends that have flown them before. No one I've ever heard of has had a good experience with Spirit. I mean, you get what you pay for, but the actual service that you get on their planes, they should actually be paying you to be on their plane. I mean, that's how bad it is. So I'm going to, I was going to play a little bit of this clip, but I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm going to play a little bit of this clip. Uh, to set the scene, um, somebody's filming, a passenger's filming another family being, you know, talking to a flight attendant. It's a family, it's a Jewish family. A, a man, woman, and a two-year-old that's sitting on the wife's lap um, that is eating. So she's actually eating, okay? She's got her spoon. You can actually see her eating in this video. So I don't know if you can make everything out, but we're going to go ahead and try playing this a little bit of this clip. I love to clear for you. I'll make sure he wears it. Everything's in the car. I'll make sure that they're wearing it, okay? So, and, and let me let me also set the scene too. The the flight attendant is African American, and it's a white Jewish family. Again, the kid is eating, and they're saying that they're they're. And remember. Part of the mask mandate is two-year-olds or under don't have to wear a mask. The kid is two, okay? So they're kicking them off. They're saying you're not in, you're not in compliance with the mask mandate. And they're saying, hey, we're wearing a mask. And both the, both the mom and dad are wearing masks. And she goes, she's, you know, the, the she's not. And she points to the baby. Well, number one, the baby doesn't have to wear a mask. But number two, the freaking baby's eating at the at the time. And she's like, no, you have to leave. You have to leave. You have to leave. Spirit Airlines, you've got to be a freaking shame to yourselves. I mean, I, I didn't think you guys could already to sink to a new low. But, man, you guys are just, just – so this is my comment I posted. Spirit Airlines was already a joke on of an airline. But COVID has allowed them to take it to a whole new level. They are hashtag the worst, hashtag spirit airline sucks, hashtag spirit sucks, hashtag just ground all of your planes, hashtag embarrassing. It, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I could not just, I that just pissed me off so bad because it's just, it's just ridiculous. All right. 
<sighs> Speaking of pissing me off, this is um, this is apparently this is a an airing of grievances uh, show today. Uh, United Teachers of Ole, you know how much I love them. Um, they're here now. They have their latest demand. Teachers unions across California say they need for ed, that say the need for educator childcare was a problem before the pandemic. Now, the United Teachers of Los Angeles is asking for more than that. The union is calling on LAUSD to allow educators with young children to continue working from home until the district can provide them subsidized childcare and a proper childcare program for te- for teachers by the fall. Um they are they've got a lot of nerve. They have a lot of gall. Um, as far as I know, they're still under a, an existing contract. And so they're basically, with the way I view it, is they are exploiting this, um, this crisis, this pandemic, to get an ask that they've wanted for a long time. And they said, well, if you can't provide that, then I guess we're just going to have to have our, these teachers work from home then essentially then making virtual learning almost a a certainty for certain classrooms. So if I have a teacher that has a three-year-old, I guess my, my kid has to stay at home. But then if a friend of ours has a different teacher in the same grade at the same school, but they don't have a child or their child, their children are growing up or their school aged or whatever, then my, their kids get to go to school because their kid, their, their, teachers going to be on campus how does that work how are you going to have some teachers be on campus and while allowing others to work from home that doesn't make any sense at all and they know that so they know that since well some of them have to work from home well to be fair you need to let all of them work from home or you need to provide this child care service basically holding the the district hostage for something they've been asking for for a long time. This is a tactic I have seen unions try to pull right now. You're in the middle of a contract. Oh my god, we've been doing so much extra work. Here's something we you know, can you do this for us, you know, as a reward for working so hard during the pandemic. It's like, no, we have a contract that goes through another 3 years. Go pound sand. Come back to us when, you know, your contract's up. Pretty simple. Here's Moema LeBlanc, who has, who has helped supervisor San Jose Kindergarten's online learning for the past year while also working from home and caring for an 18-month-old. I support a lot of the things they're fighting for, but there's a fine line because the moment that it prevents our kids from going back to school, then it's not okay. These have been chronic issues teachers have fought for for years, and unfortunately, the pandemic became the platform they needed. They know they can use it. Unions asking for childcare accommodations have found themselves playing defense as critics are quick to point out that essential workers like healthcare and grocery store employees who never stopped working in person are also parents of children who are shut out of of schools longer than families in most other states without the guarantee of childcare. So here is a quote from Maya Daniels, a LAUSD teacher. She stated this on an online petition calling on the school board to support to offer support to educator parents. Yes, we know the healthcare and essential workers have faced these challenges all year. However, a competition to the bottom is not in any of our best interests. We do not want anything we don't believe everyone is entitled to, employer support for children and families. Okay, yeah, but you understand that that's not a reality. Not everyone has this cushy union guaranteed job like you do where you have tenure and it's almost impossible to get rid of you no matter how good or bad you are at your job. You understand that, right? I mean, they live in this bubble that, and and I've seen this as a public employee, I've seen this happen where some people just live in this bubble and they believe they're entitled to so many different things when they have no clue because they've been in the system for so long they have no they're completely removed from reality of how other things operate in the in other parts of the world in other parts of the economy they have no clue and they frankly don't care and so you know their attitude 
it come to me, it comes off as they're better than people. And I hate that. I cannot, there's one thing as a public employee, I can't stand it's that. So it, it, it really pisses me off. The union is calling on to provide on the district to provide options to educators and for the state legislature and Congress to quote proactively work to provide better childcare support for all working families in California. End of quote, pointing out that women make up about seventy percent of the profession. So you're saying because more women make up the profession, um, that they need that there's more need for childcare. That sounds awfully sexist and and very old school thinking. I thought they were supposed to be progressive. That sounds like, oh, the women are supposed to take care of, of, of the children? Is that what they're saying? That sounds awfully sexist to me. You know, they, they want feminism. They want to argue equal rights and things like that. But when it comes to this, all of a sudden, oh, well, because women take care of the kids, as if these gender roles, you know, they these are the same gender roles that they've been arguing for for years that shouldn't be in place. And I'm supposed to believe now that I have to have sympathy all of a sudden because it's an issue that affects them. I thought that that shouldn't matter. I thought that shouldn't matter. Have their, you know, the husband should take care, be home and taking care of the kids then. Right? Isn't that the progressive thing to do, to say? I mean, come on. I mean, we all know that's not, that's not the case. But you can't have your cake and eat, eat it too. All right. Now, this is not the only thing that UTLA has uh, set me off on. Here's another video about a minute, minute, 20 seconds from the UTLA president, Cicely Myart Cruz, um, who had this to say uh, in a weekly update on back on March 25th. We know that a healthy, healing and racially equitable return to school does not involve stressful, high-stakes tests that are of little use during our distance learning reality. Throughout the school year, we have been working with our state and national affiliates to waive standardized tests this year. Sadly, the federal government has continued down a path that will require students, families, and educators to endure standardized testing after a unique year in education. Please allow me to be clear, standardized tests have never been a valid, equitable, or reliable measure of what a student knows or can do. And they are especially unreliable now that these tests cannot be administered safely or with any consistency. The national education is rolling out a campaign to cancel the test. Add your name to the open letter calling for all standardized tests to be canceled during the pandemic. So again, here's another example where they're using the pandemic to take down something that they have never liked. You notice that she you notice that she what she said there. Listen carefully. She says that the standardized tests will not be useful right now because of the pandemic and because of distance learning and the, the way that the methods that they have used to change and also the reduced number of hours that education has taken place. Fair enough. But then she goes on to say that the, the tests have never been a good way to, uh, to, to, to demonstrate a student's ability. But what she didn't say and what's implied is that they also should not be then therefore used to evaluate teachers' performance. And that is what UTLA cares about more than anything. And that's why they want to get rid of the standardized tests, because they feel like it's a way to evaluate the teachers and it puts pressure on them and they don't like it. So again, using the pandemic to try to get something that they've wanted for years. They've never liked these tests. She actually said that. And to me, that was a that was a tactful that was a, a tactful mistake. In terms of if you have a strategy you're trying to communicate this out, don't bring up the past, bring up now. But then they've always said, they she even said it, 
they've always said that these standardized tests don't mean anything anyway. So now, even especially now, they shouldn't be. But if you're if you feel like they've never been effective anyway, then you're just using the pandemic to further your agenda, which is to get rid of the tests altogether. So you get rid of them this year, and then you're going to argue next year. Well, we've got, we haven't had them two years in a row. Let's keep just this. Why do we have to go back to doing them? And eventually, that's how you wrote away to, at it. So it's again, never let a crisis go to waste. That is their philosophy. Good job, UTLA. Always looking out for our kids. Um, lastly, before we take our break, um, there is more fallout from the Georgia uh, voter law. I think after shortly after I recorded last week, uh, the, they decided to move Major League Baseball, decided to move the All-Star game out of Georgia, out of Atlanta, and they moved it to Coors Field in Colorado. Now, there are, you know, this obviously created a lot of outrage from the right, especially. And part of the reason is, is because before that happened, the Biden administration, and actually Joe Biden himself, said that they believe that the that Major League Baseball should pull the All-Star game from Georgia. And so th- that is that the, the timing of that is a problem. Had that not happened, they may have a little bit better of an argument because they can say baseball did it on their own. They made this call. And so, you know, if, if conservatives want to get mad at, at Major League Baseball for that, so be it. But the problem, you know, and, and some of the things are arguing, it's like, well, you're, you know, you're moving it to a place that's more white. So that's actually, that's, that's actually more racist. Uh, okay. All right. I mean, fine. You know, we can, we can, we can deal with that. You're stealing a hundred, you know, you're taking a hundred million, some, an event that would have generated a hundred million dollars for the, that the economy in that area. Well, for one thing, um, they moved a couple of years ago to SunTrust Park. Um, they were at Turner Field. Turner Field was in downtown Atlanta and they moved it to the suburbs in a more white area. So the area where would that would have actually been directly impacted, remember, they're looking at Atlanta as a whole. The stadium's on the very outskirts of the city of Atlanta. I don't even know if it is actually in the city of Atlanta, but it's definitely in a white suburb. So let's not pretend that it's going to impact the black community in terms of the economy by removing this game. You have to remember where the all-star game is taking place, and it's in a more white area. So that's number one. Um, but number two... Now, conservatives are calling for a boycott of Major League Baseball. They're calling for a boycott of Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola has come out and made comments about Georgia's new voting laws. And, you know, these were the same people that were railing against cancel culture last month when we were talking about Dr. Seuss and different things, right? And, 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 and people, you know, and they brought up the whole Chick-fil-A thing again and how Chick-fil-A is being boycotted and and we, you know, we need to end cancel culture. Cancel culture is ruining our society, and let and yet they are now doing the exact same thing. Not even a month later. It's like you guys don't even remember. Like last month, you were just railing and crying about cancel culture, and now you're gonna be gonna be all up in this. I mean, you cannot be serious. Come on, people. Like get up, get real. You know, um. Now, one of the things they're criticizing is, and I have an article here that talks about that. So when Major League Baseball decided to move the All-Star game to Denver, it was a moment of celebration for many Colorado politicos. But the move quickly met a new conservative talking point. The states aren't that different, Republican lawmakers claimed. Governor Brian Kemp argued on Fox News that the change doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Colorado has equally restrictive laws. He and others pointed out that Georgia offers voters 17 days of in-person early voting, while Colorado has only 15 of those in-person days. And he said that Georgia requires photo ID to vote in person, or Colorado requires photo ID to vote in person. God, I can't read. Just like Georgia's new law. So hypocritical, Kemp said. Senator Tim Scott, a South Carolina Republican, posted a similar message on Twitter. Now, here's a major difference, though. Colorado votes by mail. 
Every registered voter receives a ballot about 15 to 20 days before the election. And instead of waiting in line at a polling station, the vast majority simply drop the ballot in a mailbox or secure Dropbox. According to the information from the Secretary of State, 99.3% of Colorado primary voters used one of those methods last year. So while it's true that Colorado has fewer days for in-person voting, it also has far less demand for in-person voting. Voters rarely encounter lines, and ultimately the res- ultimately result of, is a, of Colorado's system is extremely high turnout, and that is true. During the 2020 general election, um, where with the presidential election, um, Colorado had the second highest turnout of any state in the country. And so um, I think Georgia was somewhere in the middle of the pack. And that, and that is with Georgia being a battleground state where much more money was spent than in Colorado, which was pretty much a far, foregone conclusion that it would be a Biden victory there, which it was. So far more money was spent in Georgia on campaigning than um, than in Colorado. And that tends to increase voter turnout because people are more engaged. They see more ads everywhere and they, f- they feel uh, compelled to go vote. So even with that, Colorado still had a much higher turnout than Georgia did. So uh, Colorado or Georgia's new law moves the state away from Colorado's vote by mail approach, pushing more voters to show up in person. For example, under the new law, Georgia election officials can only mail out absentee applications to voters who individually request it, shutting down one approach to encouraging mail balloting. And voters will have a shorter window to ask for those ballots. Georgia sent out absentee applications to millions of voters in the 2020 primary, even if they hadn't requested it, to encourage absentee voting during the pandemic. Now, another thing that they've talked about is drop boxes. Colorado has one drop box for per 9,400 active registered voters for the last election. Um, with in, in in Georgia, the new law caps the caps it at one box per 100,000 active registered voters. The metropolitan Atlanta area could see its number of drop boxes drop from 94 to 23. And instead of being outdoors 24 with 24-hour access, as many in Colorado are, the Georgia boxes must be inside government buildings and voting sites. So um, they talk about voter ID. Colorado does require some form of ID when voters register for the first time and whenever they vote in person. But the state accepts 16 different forms of identification. The options include common IDs like driver's license, passport, government employee ID, but Colorado also accepts Medicare and Medicaid cards, college IDs, utility bills, bank statements, and paychecks. Um, They do not require um, identification for mail voting once a person is registered. Instead, the state mails a ballot to the person's home and matches their signature against the database when the ballot is returned. In contrast, Georgia allows only six forms of ID for in-person voting, and the state requires that voters provide a driver's license number, a copy of the identification card, or a social security number each time they vote by mail. Georgia does does allow first-time voters in the state to use a utility bill as ID when they have not been able to prove residency when they first applied to vote. They also do allow for first-time voters um, to use documentation such as utility bills, bank statements, and government documents that show a person's name and address as identification um, again, as, as, as if they were not able to prove, prove residency when they first apply to vote, but that option is only available for the person's first time voting in the state. The Georgia laws, laws, law limits for on providing food and water near um, polling sites have become another focus of criticism. Um, after, after the um, All-Star Game was moved, viral tweets claim that Colorado has the same restrictions. Not quite, um, but it's similar. And the reason is, is because they don't want to have electioneering done in, when people are in line. But it also doesn't matter as much because, again, the demand for in-person voting is not as much. So the need for you're not going to be standing in line for hours on end in Colorado. You could be in Georgia, but not in Colorado because most people are voting by mail anyway. And apparently they don't have a turnout problem. Their turnout is just fine. And as far as I know... There wasn't any allegations of fraud in in Colorado. So there's that too. So I think that, you know, again, people are are, are criticizing this and, and, you know, the the hypocrisy on cancel culture is really, really something else. So 
anyway, I just wanted to give an update on on that and try to kind of clear that up, that issue up a little bit. Okay, so when we come back, we're going to talk about Matt Getz, who he is, other controversies surrounding him, and the allegations he's facing. So we're going to talk about that straight ahead. Do you experience digital eye strain from too much blue light exposure from digital screens? Baxter blue glasses are not your average frames. These blue light lenses filter 80% of the highest energy blue light, eliminating 99% of glare. The past year, we have all been glued to our devices more than ever with all of these online meetings that we would normally be face-to-face. Our exposure to digital light has soared, and our eyes and our sleep have suffered as a result. I actually started using blue light filter glasses shortly after the initial shutdown started, and they have made a world of difference for me. Before using them, I would get headaches uh, as the day wore on and all with all the eye, straining on my eyes we're doing, but that went away once I started using blue light filters. Baxter Blue is also a force for good and provides a pair of reading glasses for someone in need for every pair sold. This is eyewear built for our digital age, and Baxter Blue is giving our listeners 10% off your next purchase of blue light, sleep, or kids' glasses. Click the link in our show notes for your exclusive discount. This is the sign you've been waiting for to invest in blue light glasses. We know you will love your Baxters, and we know that you will feel the difference. Welcome back to the Moderate Podcast for this Saturday, April 10th, 2021. Glad to have you on board this week. And so let's get into this Matt Getz controversy. You probably have heard about this. It's been pretty big news and it's been a wild story. Um, But before we get into the actual allegations against Matt Getz, I think it's important to understand who he is. So we're going to kind of start at the beginning of his career and where to kind of kind of read through some of the things that he's done. Um, he's a native of Florida, grew up in Walt, Fort Walton Beach, graduated from Niceville High School in 2000. I mean, that just sounds like a typical, you know, white guy, you know, rich, um, you know, affluent person. Niceville High School it just sounds so pleasant. Uh, he graduated from uh, Florida State University in 2003 with a Bachelor of Science in inter- inter- Interdisciplinary Sciences and then earned his JD from William & Mary Law School in 2007, and he was admitted to the Florida Bar in 2008. Uh, his father, um, Don Getz, uh, he represented parts of Northwest Florida as a member of the Florida State Senate from 2006 to 2016 and was Senate President from 2012 to 2014. Now, after graduating from William & Mary, he went to work for a law firm of Keefe, uh, Anchors, and Gordon in his hometown of Fort Walton Beach. Now, in uh, March of 2010, following the Republican State Representative Ray Sansom's resignation on corruption charges, uh, Getz ran in a special election to succeed Sansom in the 4th District. Um, He won the Republican primary, and then he defeated Democratic uh, nominee Jan Fernald with 66% of the vote. Uh, During his campaign, Getz received almost $480,000 in contributions about five times more than anyone else in the field and almost 50 times more than Fernald, including $100,000 of his own money. So one of the things that has always struck me about Getz is he just seems like, and this is probably why he gets along with Trump so well, he just seems like a spoiled rich kid, you know, um, and, and has been privileged his whole life. You know, people talk about white privilege, right? When I think about privilege, I think about guys like Getz, and I think about people like Donald Trump and Eric Trump and Ivanka Trump, who have lived in the, you know, never had to worry about money, because Don Getz uh, made his money in hospice. Um, he, he, He started a hospice business and then sold it for half a billion dollars, so $500 million. So that's how his father made his money. And, uh, you know, and, and he's not a, he's not stupid. I mean, he's a smart guy. I mean, he, he went to law school, passed the bar. So he's a, he's an, he's a practicing attorney. Um, so it's not like he's, you know, a stupid person or anything like that. Um, and he's earned what he's gotten, but again, he kind of still comes off with that bratty rich kid type of vibe. Um, 
Getz ran unopposed for a full term in 2010 and also ran unopposed in 2012 and 2014 when he's reelected. And then um, in 2013, he announced that he was going to run for the state Senate, but instead chose to run for uh, the U.S. House seat representing Florida's first congressional district. The incumbent, Jeff Miller, had announced 11 days earlier that he would not seek re-election. So he won the Republican primary um, pretty easily, 35.7% of the vote. The second place person had 21.5%. And this virtually assured Getz's victory in the general election because uh, the first uh, the the... The first district in Florida is one of the most conservative. It's the most conservative, most Republican in Florida, and one of the most Republican in the nation. Um, and indeed, he got 69% of the vote in that first election. So he was first elected to the House in uh, 2016, about the same time that Donald Trump was elected. Now, though his financial though a financial disclosure form gets filled out. In 2016, showed a net worth of $388,000. He donated $200,000 of his own money to his congressional campaign. He also resigned from from two Florida House political action committees he had started and chaired. The PACs closed down and transferred $380,000 to a federal super PAC, North Florida Neighbors, whose purpose was to support Getz's congressional campaign. So he had to resign from those because you cannot be affiliated with a candidate that is the the um the mccain feingold um, campaign uh reform that they that happened you know years ago um so here you know after the 2020 state of the union address gets filed an ethics complaint against uh, speaker nancy pelosi claiming she had committed a flagrant violation of decorum and perhaps broken the law when she ripped up a cop her copy of the State of the Union address. We remember. We all remember seeing that. Um, and uh, Getz has identified himself as a libertarian populist. Um, he introduced so he some of the the stances he has. He's uh, he does support the legalization of cannabis, um, and he has been one of the few Republicans to uh, to be on that um, on that bandwagon. Um, of course, he's a big follower of Donald Trump. Um, he called himself a proud Trump protege, and uh, he's one. He political called him one of the most enthusiastic defenders of President Trump on cable news. He's always on Fox News all the time. Appearing on The View shortly before Trump associate Roger Stone was was sentenced, Getz said he would support a pardon for Stone. Um, and then um, this was an interesting. So this is kind of relates to. The story that we're gonna, that that he's involved with now, the New York Times reported in April 2021, during the final weeks of Trump's presidency, Getz privately asked for the White House for preemptive blanket pardons for himself and some unnamed congressional allies for any crimes they have may have committed. Though it was not immediately clear what crimes or people were involved, the White House reportedly never seriously considered the request because it was decided preemptive pardons would set a bad precedent. The Times reported uh, aides told Trump of the request, but Trump denied Getz, asked him for a pardon, and noted that Getz totally denied the accusations against him. On April 8th, um, this just two days ago, uh, Maggie Haberman of the Times told CNN's New Day that Trump wanted to defend Getz, but was told to stand down due to the allegation's seriousness. On April 3rd, the Daily Beast reported that Trump said the allegations were really bad for Getz, but could also be a smear. Um, and there's other, you know, he, he he takes very conservative positions. Although his stance on global warming is a little bit more um, moderate than um, some Republicans are, and he actually does acknowledge the existence of global warming. And he actually uh, he was he joined the bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus. Uh, he introduced the bipartisan Super Pollutants Act. So he does have some stances on the economy. Um, very big with the NRA. Now, another one, and his, his stance on um, human trafficking. Getz was the lone no vote on the Combating Human Trafficking and Commercial Vehicles Act, a bill allocating additional government resources to help combat human trafficking. Getz later explained that his vote was due to his small government principles, believing that existing federal agencies could adequately combat human trafficking 
and stating that voters that quote voters in Northwest Florida did not send me to Washington to go and create more federal government. Interesting that he would say that. Um. So what is what is he facing now? This is an article from New York Magazine. The New York Times set the political world on fire um, a couple of weeks ago when it reported that Getz was invi- was being investigated for having a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and paying for her to travel across state lines. Not only did he deny the claims, he went on Fox News to turn um, Tucker Carlson into a character witness and sketched an elaborate conspiracy to extort both him and his father, Don Getz, that the congressman says prompted the, the story in the Times. Getz points the finger to at David McGee, a lawyer who worked on the case of Robert Levinson, American taken hostage by the Iranian government in 2007, is now believed to be dead. And that has been reported months ago. This is actually four months ago that it was reported that he was believed to be dead. So well before these allegations have come out. McGee, a former federal prosecutor who now practices law in Florida, is accused of shaking down Don Getz through Bob Kent, a former Air Force intelligence officer who also worked on the Levinson case. The alleged scheme involves $25 million in cash to make the sex trafficking case go away and somehow free Levinson. So the Post reported that McGee and Kent learned of the investigation into Getz when they allegedly approached his father, Don Getz, who made a fortune in the hospice industry, as I mentioned earlier. In the timeline that Getz lays out in his interview with Tucker Carlson on Tuesday night, he said, quote, Our family was so troubled by that, we went to the local FBI, and the FBI and the Department of Justice were so concerned about this attempted extortion of a member of Congress that they asked my dad to wear a wire, which he did with the former Department of Justice official. So there are text messages that maybe looked like this. Um, they view, the New York Magazine um, viewed a text message exchange between Kent and Dodd Getz. Ken outlined a scheme to help Getz defuse the scandal. I would like to talk with you about the current federal investigation and the indictment that is about to be filed against your son. I have a plan that can make his future legal and political problems go away. Ken then supposedly gave a document to Don Getz at a meeting the next day, which claims that the FBI has, quote, compromising pictures, end of quote, of Matt Getz engaging in a sexual orgy with underage prostitutes. However, in exchange for $25 million from Don Getz, it would secure Levinson's release and a pardon for Matt Getz from President Biden. I still don't understand why Levinson, Levinson is involved in this whole thing. Because he's been missing since 2007. Around this time, a lawyer for Don Getz named Jeffrey Neiman emailed a federal prosecutor in Florida to confirm that the older Getz was working with the FBI. The, pro, pro, the prosecutor wrote back, I can confirm that your client is working with my office as well as the FBI at the government's request. The investigation into Getz stems from the federal prosecution of Joel Greenberg, the former elected tax collector in Seminole County, Florida. Greenberg was slapped with more than a dozen charges alleging he trafficked girls for for sex across state lines and forged fake IDs for for them and himself, as well as stalking his wife. Um, He resigned from office after being indicted and has since pleaded not guilty. And now, as we're going to learn in a second, he actually is working on a plea deal. Now, Getz and Greenberg were close. They posed for a picture together at the White House and apparently have several ex-girlfriends in common. So, now, it gets weirder. The House Ethics Committee said it has begun an investigation into allegations involving Representative Matt Getz, citing a host of alleged abuses, including sexual misconduct, the sharing of inappropriate images or videos on the House floor, and the improper conversion of campaign funds to personal use. Mr. Getz on Friday reiterated that he has no plans to leave office. Let me assure you, I have not yet to begun to fight for the country I love and for the nation that I know benefits from American first principles. He said at the Save America Summit at the Trump National Doral Resort in Miami, which, by the way, was a women for Trump or women for, I don't know, justice, I don't know, some, some, some women's organization, ironically enough. I am built for the battle. I am not going anywhere. The smears against me range from distortions of of my personal life to wild, and I mean wild, conspiracy theories. Uh, The committee's announcement came a day after a Florida lawyer for Joel Greenberg, an associate and political ally of Mr. Guest, said his client was in talks with federal prosecutors to reach a plea agreement over indictment on 33 counts 
including sex trafficking, bribery of a public official, wire fraud, and money laundering. Mr. Greenberg is expected to face trial in June unless a plea deal is struck before then. Federal investigators believe Mr. Greenberg met women online through so-called sugar daddy websites that connected that connect individuals for dates in exchange for expensive gifts or travel, people familiar with the matter say. Their probe is looking at whether Mr. Greenberg introduced some of the women to the Florida congressman who also allegedly had sex with them, the people said. So the only reason that they would do a plea bargain with Greenberg if he's being accused of all of these things is if there's a bigger fish to fry. The only way you would you would plea get a plea deal struck is number number one, if maybe the guy is guilty and there's too much evidence and he wants to reduce his sentence. But also, is he going to then turn state's evidence against someone else involved? I.e. Matt Getz, which would be a much bigger target. Especially if he's even more involved and has other stuff on him as well. So this is a crazy, crazy story. I still don't follow the whole thing about the extortion. Number one, that doesn't prove his innocence. If he's being extorted based on a crime he didn't commit, then why wouldn't he say, I didn't do anything, so you go ahead and do whatever you want because I didn't do anything. I'm not going to pay you $25 million for something I didn't do. And the second thing is, is that why, why does Levinson have anything to do with this? Why, why, do they, why do they care if Levinson is released? And he's dead anyway. But they're talking about, well, for $25 million, we'll make the case go away and we'll secure Levinson's release. Like, what, who cares about that? If you're being accused of sexual, a sexual crime, especially one that you didn't commit, why the hell do you care about a prisoner in freaking Iran that's been there for 14 years? What does that matter? The, the whole thing is just freaking bizarre. But it does not sound good for him. And so we're going to continue to watch what happens with this. And um, just a crazy, crazy case. And, um, you know, I, I obviously there, it's too early to tell whether the guy is guilty or not. Um, this story, this extortion story, could all be true, by the way. It could be true that they were trying to extort Matt Getz's father. But that also might mean he committed the crime. It doesn't mean that one can't be true without the other. Especially if the crime is true. Why would you bribe somebody for a crime that they didn't commit? So they must have information... If it, it, it looks like they have they have enough evidence to show that this extortion probably did take place, and if that's the case, they must have evidence that to know that Matt Getz is involved with this guy. That's what's just that's just what it seems like at this point. So, whew, man, what a uh, what a crazy story, and what and and this is just you know. I've been hearing about it. It's been big news in the political scene, but I wanted to wait a little bit to get a little bit more information on it. But it's just too crazy to talk, you know. And again, I don't have, you know, I don't care whether what what Matt Gatz's politics are in terms of um, why why this is a, a big deal or not. I mean, if he's if he's um, if they're transporting a woman across a, a minor, a girl across state lines for him to have sex with even if it's not across state lines. That's the only reason it becomes a federal case, by the way. Otherwise, it'd be a state case. I mean, and actually, it, it would still be a state case because if if you have sex with an underage girl in a state, I, I'm pretty sure. I think the age of consent in Florida is 18. Um, if, I'm not, if I'm mistaken on that, please let me know. Um, that is a problem. But I've talked about before, um, if it's just about prostitution... Right now, that is illegal. Um, I don't believe it should be illegal, illegal especially if it's uh, you know consenting adults. Um, you we draw the line. You draw the line when when it comes to minors. I I completely get that, and I, I completely agree with that. But um, I mean, you know, prostitution is something I would never engage in. But that doesn't mean it should be illegal. 
just like I don't think marijuana should be illegal. But do I have any plans to smoke marijuana? I've never have, and I don't plan on ever doing it. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't think people should partake, shouldn't be able to partake in that. Um, we allow our alcohol, which can actually do more damage. Um, it just doesn't make any sense that, you know, we're going to, we're, you know, the, the argument's always been, well, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. It's like, well, why isn't alcohol? Alcohol is a drug too. I mean, you, you, you can't, you can't like have it both ways. I mean, alcohol is a drug. So the, the fact that we legalized alcohol, but don't have legalized marijuana doesn't make sense. And I think prostitution should be something because who, if, if, if I am a man and I want to pay a woman to have sex and she wants to accept my money and she's into it, what business of that is of that of the government? Why should that be illegal? You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't make much sense, but again, it should it be, is it, you know, is it morally correct? Maybe not. And that's, and that's an argument, but morals shouldn't be what in, in people's individual morals shouldn't be what dictates law. And that's the difference. And so that's where I tend to be more of a libertarian than, than, um, than anything else in those particular situations. I'm not an anarchy. I'm, I do believe in small government, but I do believe in government's role. And I believe government does have a role in, in our society. I think it should be more on the local level than on the federal level. And I believe in small federal government, but I still believe in like government-owned roads and there's certain socialist policies that I do think should exist. Um, but that doesn't make me a socialist either, okay? You can have it both ways and there's nuance in politics. And I think that's where in general, we get messed up is that we just don't get that nuance on, you can look at individual things and say, yeah, it's okay for the government to do this, but they probably shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, for reason, for, for good reason. And I've always said, for example, utilities, especially water utilities should be government. They do, they actually government, and you look at how public, private utilities are ran for water, government always does a better job. I'm sorry to tell you that. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but there that is a situation where government does a better job. Just saying. So anyway, um, I think I've said enough um, for today. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's show. Thank you for joining us on The Moderate Podcast. Remember to visit our website at themoderatepodcast.com. Don't forget to click on the Podchaser link on the website. Leave us a review so you can help out Meals on Wheels. You're helping out a good cause and you're helping me make the show better. So why not? Takes a couple of minutes maybe. Take a couple of minutes out of your day. Do that for us. We'd appreciate it. Also, don't forget to visit the link in our show notes for um, the, those blue glasses, those Baxter blue glasses. Uh, check those out. Again, those blue light glasses are, are definitely a life changer, especially if you spend a lot of time on a screen. I'm, I'm serious about that. They, they do a great job and I use them all the time, so please check those out. So next week, we're going to talk about the Biden's Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. That came out late yesterday, and so we're going to talk about that next week on the show. So until then, we're going to start moving the show to Saturday. So until next Saturday, everyone stay safe and keep it real. 